Well, the scriptures tell us to rejoice with those who rejoice and to weep with those who weep. And we have a little bit of both for us this morning. Uh, First of all, I want to rejoice in that our brother, Andrew Smith, and his newly minted wife, uh, Lauren Smith, are both with us. Welcome back from your honeymoon. It's good to have you two back with us again. And then uh, as the Lord brings additions to us, or sometimes also departures, our dear sister, Connie Mulford, uh, is going to be moving back home to Kansas. This is her last Sunday with us. She's going to go back home and take care of her 88-year-old mother during this time. We're going to miss you, Connie. You've been such a dear part of us. But please make sure you, you say something to Connie before she leaves today. Let's pray. Lord, you have done something exceptional here among us at Providence. You have made us a family. And we know, Lord, that we are family due to what you have done on the cross through Jesus Christ, your son. It is because he has reconciled us to you that we can be your adopted children and that we have brothers and sisters both here and in other places and across the world because of what Christ has done. And so we are so grateful, Lord, that we can rejoice for one another, that we can weep for one another, that we can comfort each other, as our scriptures told us earlier. That, Lord, as we are going through life, you are teaching us more and more about yourself and more and more about how we might trust you. Help us to do this endeavor together. We pray this in the finished work of Christ. Amen. Well, good morning. We are back in Genesis, and I know the first question that I'm going to get this morning is, why have we skipped over the last few verses of Genesis 25? I'll hear you, you engineers, you analytical point, because we stopped at uh, chapter 25, verse 28 last week, and there are still six verses that remain in the chapter, and no doubt you would say, Blair, you're an expositional preacher. You preach verse by verse through a book of the Bible in its context, so why in the world would you skip? over those verses? Great question. I want to promise you, Lord willing, I will return to those verses next week. But the reason I'm briefly passing over them is due to what transpires in Genesis chapter 26. Uh, The first three, or first 33 verses of this chapter are anachronous which means they are out of chronological order. This narrative goes back to a time prior to the birth of the two boys from our previous sermon. And that's going to become abundantly obvious as we work through them. This is usually the place where a skeptic says, aha, you see, there are mistakes in the Bible. The narrator, or at least Moses the writer, has has gotten things out of order. Therefore, the Bible must be full of errors. Au contraire, mon frere. I don't think that when Moses composed Genesis, he said, oops, I forgot to include this earlier, and I'm all fresh out of whiteout, so I'm just going to insert it right here. There is a reason why this narrative is placed here. We've already had one example of this type of displacement at the beginning of chapter 25 when we learned of Abraham's sons by Keturah. That concubine and those sons are not important to the story as they are not children of the promise. But it was proper to include them within an accurate historical account. And also, we have seen the burial of Abraham to close out his story even though he is still alive at the time of his grandson's birth. But as to why most of chapter 26 is out of order is related to what happens at the end of chapter 25. 
Esau will trade his birthright to his younger brother Jacob for a bowl of stew. And we read in the last verse, or last two verses, that Esau despised his birthright. It's at this point that the narrator will reveal exactly what Esau despised. It'll be no small thing. Isaac, over the years, had amassed great wealth and influence by the birthright of Yahweh being with him. And Esau turned his nose up at it. Now, I'm going to go ahead and do an overview of the life of Isaac this morning and then return to Esau's actions next week so we can see how he distanced himself from his family. It will make more sense to us if we follow this order. So if you notice, I titled the sermon, Same Song, Different Verse. Now, I've used that title before in the life of Abraham, and we might refer to this as the third verse of that same song. I almost entitled it, uh, The Apple Doesn't Fall Far From the Tree. Both are appropriate as we see Isaac emulate the same poor behavior that his father did earlier. And I chose the first title because like his dad, God is still faithful despite Isaac's bad choices. And that is the primary point of these verses. Yahweh is with Isaac just as he was with Abraham. And we're going to see the Lord's presence in three episodes. First, we'll see a time of testing and promise for Isaac. Then we're going to look at Isaac's time in Gerar, and that's going to be followed by his time in Beersheba. And towards the end of the sermon, I want to make some observations about what God is doing. So that's going to be where we're heading. Testing and promise, Isaac's time in Gerar, then Beersheba, and conclude with a few observations. Now, let's begin with the testing. In verse 1, we see that the Lord brings a famine into the land. And the narrator reminds us that this is a different famine from the one that Abraham experienced back in chapter 12. Now, if you remember, on that occasion, rather than trust God's provision within the promised land, Abraham sought relief in Egypt. Isaac is instructed by God not to go to Egypt, but to remain in Canaan. And this prohibition comes with a promise. Rather than turning to Egypt, he is to travel throughout the promised land. Look at this, verse 3. Sojourn in this land, and I will be with you and will bless you. For to you and to your offspring I will give all these lands, and I will establish the oath that I swore to Abraham your father. I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven, and will give to your offspring all these lands. And in your offspring... All the nations of the earth shall be blessed because Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. Now, look at verse 3. Isaac is to sojourn, not to just stay in one place. And yet we'll see that is precisely what he does in Gerar. Initially, he settles there. However, God promises to be with Isaac just as he was with Abraham. And he says he will multiply Isaac's offspring and give the land to them, and that through his offspring all the nations of the earth will be blessed. He is doing this because Yahweh swore an oath to Abraham. And as we keep seeing over and over again, Yahweh always keeps his word. And yet, look at verse 5. God says, verse 5, Because Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. Now, last year, we examined Abraham's life in detail. And yes, he did obey God's instructions eventually. He was not perfect in his obedience. 
But Abraham's obedience had less to do with what happens than what God promises. But look at how verses 4 and 5 is worded here. It is the nations that benefited from Abraham's recognition that Yahweh's ways were righteous, and he became uh, convinced to be faithful to those. That is how the rest of the world will receive God's blessing. It will come through Yahweh's righteousness and our acknowledgement of Yahweh's righteousness. Now, we're going to return to that theme later in Genesis. So here we are with Abraham's promised offspring, Isaac. He's at least 40 years old at this point because he and Rebekah are married. There's no mention of children. He's an adult capable of making his own choices. God tells him to sojourn or to travel throughout the land. And what does he do? Verse 6, so Isaac settled in Gerar. You see, the apple doesn't fall too far from the tree. Like his dad, he offers partial obedience Isaac probably told himself, well, I'll get around to traveling eventually, but this is comfortable. There's a famine. There's food here. And once again, the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. Verse 7, when the men of the place asked him about his wife, he said, she is my sister. For he feared to say, my wife, thinking lest the men of the place should kill me because of Rebekah, because she was attractive in appearance. He does the same type of thing as his father and mother did in Egypt with Pharaoh and later in this same location prior to Isaac's birth. However, there are two differences. First, Rebekah doesn't become anyone's concubine like Sarah did in Egypt and when Abraham was in Gerar earlier in life prior to Isaac's birth. And second, Isaac outright lies. He says Rebekah is his sister. At least when Abraham said the same, he was telling a partial truth as Sarah was his half-sister. But their motivation to deceive was the same, fear. Isaac did not trust Yahweh's protection. Like his dad, he was going to have to learn that Yahweh always keeps his word. Now, we read in verse 8 that this ruse was carried out for an extended period of time, and it was only when Abimelech looked outside of his window that he discovered something was up. Now remember, Abimelech is not a name. It is a title for the Philistine leader like Pharaoh is for Egypt. He looks out a window, and he sees Isaac flirting in an intimate manner with Rebekah. The word translated as laughing here also carries the connotation of, of caressing or tickling. And Abimelech sees activity that would certainly not be appropriate between a brother and a sister. And this Philistine confronts Isaac. Isaac confesses, and Abimelech is worried about the possible national sin that Isaac could have caused. He feared Yahweh more than Isaac did. And he warns his people not to touch this couple. Now, don't lose sight here that Yahweh proves himself faithful to work through his mean his means, excuse me, even when Isaac isn't obedient. Isaac still remains in Gerar, and he sows. He farms both with livestock and agriculture, and his wealth increases a hundredfold. We see why in verse 12. Yahweh blessed him just as he said he would. He becomes so wealthy that the Philistines envy him. They resent the fact that this foreigner grew wealthy off of their land. And in their jealousy, as a deterrent, they begin to stop up the surrounding wells. And in verse 16, Abimelech acknowledges Isaac's power and orders him to leave his land. Most likely, he's using excuse. Isaac, you're using up all the resources of our land. 
Isaac obeys his request, and he moves away from Gerar. Now, remember, what did God want originally? He wanted Isaac to sojourn, right? To travel throughout the land. And that is what is happening now as God uses ordinary means to move him. But apparently not far enough for the Philistines' comfort. As Isaac unstops wells that his father had dug before his birth, wells that Isaac should have been entitled to, the Philistine herdsmen now claim them as their own. This happens twice, where Isaac named the first well dispute and the second opposition. When he digs up the third, they leave him alone, and he names that one space, or we might say in the vernacular elbow room. And in verse 22... Isaac acknowledges that the Lord is the one who blessed him. And he finally has enough room here to grow. Isaac begins to get the picture. The further that he moves away from Gerar and sojourns like he was supposed to do, the more Yahweh increases his wealth. Next, we read about Isaac's settlement for a time in Beersheba. Beersheba is about 17 miles southwest of Gerar. And another episode is going to repeat itself at this same location that happened in the time of Abraham back in chapter 21. It will affirm that Yahweh is with Isaac just like he was with his father Abraham. And it begins with Yahweh renewing his promise to Isaac. It would seem we have another theophany here. Verse 24, And the Lord appeared to him the same night and said, I am the God of Abraham, your father. Fear not. For I am with you, and I will bless you and multiply your offspring for my servant Abraham's sake. And Isaac responds by offering worship. Remember, to call upon the name of Yahweh is an idiom to worship. So he built an altar there and called upon the name of the Lord and pitched his tent there. And there Isaac's servants dug a well, and it's going to eventually be called Oath. But we'll get to the reason why it's named this in just a moment. But note that it is Yahweh that assumes responsibility for this promise. It's the same promise that he made to Abraham. It is unconditional. Isaac doesn't have to do a thing. All he has to do is believe it and receive the blessing of God's presence. And God affirms it with what happens next. Verse 26. When Abimelech went to him, Gerar, with Ahuzath, his advisor, and Phicol, the commander of his army, Isaac said to them, why have you come to me, seeing that you hate me and you've sent me away from you? And they said, we see plainly that the Lord has been with you. So we said, let there be a pact between us, between you and us, and let us make a covenant with you that you will do us no harm just as we have not touched you and have done done anything to you but good and have sent you away in peace. And look at their testimony. You are now the blessed of the Lord, or the blessed of Yahweh. So he made them a feast, and they ate and drank. And in the morning they rose early and exchanged oaths. And Isaac sent them on their way, and they departed from him in peace. The same thing happened with Isaac as happened with Abraham. Isaac has ascended with power on his own. Yes, his father was still alive at this point. But this present king of Gerar acknowledges that Isaac is greater in rank than himself. Isaac has seemingly achieved this rank on his own apart from his father. But we know differently. Yahweh did this. He backed Isaac and is proving that he is with him in the same way that he was with his father. Even the pagans recognize this. Isaac is having his own 
faith-building experience that Yahweh is his God. He is not resting in his father's riches and position. He is achieving his own as God is faithful to him too. Now, it's at this point in the story that Isaac's servants tell him that they discovered water. And Isaac names the well Oath, not because of the oath with the Philistines, but due to the oath God has made with him. And Moses records that this place is still known by that name during his day. Now, Lord willing, we'll address this more next week. But we see further evidence here of Esau despising his father's birthright in the final two verses of chapter 26. He marries Canaanite women. We will see that Esau would rather build his own kingdom than trust Yahweh to do it for him. So with the time that we have remaining, I want to draw your attention to what we've learned about God within this episode. Isaac rises to prominence. The birthright or what we might call the promise made to Abraham's descendants, is considerably great. And yet Isaac seems to have nothing to do with it. It is all, (coughs) excuse me, it is all (coughs) by the grace of Yahweh, just like me speaking right now. Therefore, we learn more about God than we do the man Isaac here. Remember, Genesis 1, or Genesis is one of five books composed by Moses during the exodus from Egypt. It's a book of origins meant to teach the Israelites about their God. And he is the hero of the story. No matter who the figure it describes at any time, whether it's Adam or Eve, Noah, Abraham and Sarah, or Isaac, the same God who was with these earlier historical people is the same God that was with Moses and the Jews when they left Egypt. So what do we learn about him In this chapter, well, there are three characteristics that I want to point out. First, God always keeps his promises. God always keeps his promises. Throughout this chapter, we are seeing that Yahweh blesses Isaac in the same way that he blessed his father. Just as he promised Abraham that that he would do with offspring of Sarah uh, Sarah and Abraham, Isaac will go through his own trials here. He will be told the promise, and yet just like his dad, he has to learn obedience and faith in the promise. He starts being fearful. A famine will keep him near Gerar instead of sojourning as the Lord commanded He fears the Philistines will kill him and take his wife, and he is mooching off the Philistines as he lives in Gerar. But what does the Lord show him in his promise to Isaac? Three things here. First, he provides him with provision. As far as I can tell, the famine is still going on throughout the chapter here. Yet, who is the one getting wealthier? Isaac and Rebekah, right? Second, Yahweh provides him with protection. Isaac begins his time in Gerar fearful that he might be killed. By the end of the story, who is afraid of who? The Philistines fear Isaac and his God. Just as the the threat of God's wrath upon this nation in verse 10 made Abimelech feel afraid here. And last, God provides Isaac with property. He has plenty of space and water to grow his livestock in Beersheba. He even has a treaty with the nearest king eliminating any threat to his land. Yahweh always keeps his promises. Always. Second, God keeps his promises based upon 
His Word. God keeps His promises based upon His Word. When He says it, He does it. Isaac does the same unrighteous things that his father did. He fears, he doesn't trust, he lies, he doesn't obey, and yet he still receives the blessing of the same promise that his father had. Why? Because Yahweh said it would be based upon his word alone, not whether or not Isaac or Rebekah were obedient to him. They earn nothing throughout this episode. It's all given to him. Now, let me say a word about sin here, because we don't want to get past this important point when we talk about it. Sin is heinous. It is absolutely disgusting to a holy God, to a perfect God, to a God who is completely righteous and just, and he must punish any rebellion against him. It is absolutely horrendous. In fact, it is so bad that in order for us to come into God's presence, we have to be covered with God's Son's blood. We have to be atoned for by God's Son. That is how bad sin is. So I want to make sure you understand, Isaac is not getting a pass here. He is still dealing with his own sin, but God is saving him based on his word and what God will do in the future. I say that because I want you to, don't want you to think, well, you know, God's just letting all this stuff slide. He's not. In fact, we're going to see here pretty soon that Isaac and Rebekah are going to have to deal with the consequences of their sin in their lifetime. It's not going to be the wrath of hell that comes upon them, but they will be dealing with the consequences of their sin as it comes. Which brings us here to our last observation here. Because God always keeps his promise based upon his word, based upon his pledge to us, Yahweh is a God of great mercy and grace. Yahweh is a God of great mercy and grace. If this had been up to me trying to lead Isaac, I would have dropped him day one when he refused to leave Gerar. Okay, Isaac, if this is how you want to play it, then you reap what you sow. But God is tender like a father. He guides Isaac through this. At no point does Isaac presume that he's entitled to anything. Rather, he is learning to trust his God in gentleness as circumstances prove that Yahweh is absolutely sovereign. Isaac is learning that he can have absolute faith in God. Friend, have you learned to trust God? This is a God who loves you so much that he sent his one and only son to die on the cross so that he might have a relationship with you. You may ask, well, why was that necessary? Because like Isaac, we are all sinners. We have all rebelled and disobeyed this holy God. Therefore, we deserve his wrath and his punishment. We deserve death. And for those who believe it, Jesus took that upon himself. He suffered in our place, and he gives us his right standing before the Father so that we might be called the sons and daughters of God. Now note that God will still allow trials in your life, just as he did with Isaac. But he will prove himself faithful to you at every turn. He will show you that he can be trusted. At the completion of our life, we too will have 
provision, protection, property, even prestige. In fact, if you will, turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 1. And if not, you can simply listen to me as I say these words or read these words to you. This is found on page 1014 of your pew Bible. Listen to these beautiful words from Peter. A man who was shown great grace after he denied Jesus three times. Three times. Verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. To an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you. You get that, folks? That's property. That's where we're going. We're going to heaven, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. That's protection. By God's power being guarded through faith. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it's tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. That is provision. He is taking care of you every step of the way until you reach glory. And though you've not seen him, just like Isaac, you are learning you love him. Though you not see him now, you believe in him and you rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Friend, that is what God has provided through his son, Jesus. It is the same birthright that was available to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It's the same birthright that Esau thumbed his nose at and refused. Will you refuse it? You might say, well, I don't believe in this God. I've suffered so much. I can't get over what has happened to me in the past. I understand how you feel. In fact, we read a passage in Scripture in Second Corinthians chapter 1 where Paul went through great suffering. But no that God's had a purpose in that suffering, where he was able to say, it taught me to rely in God and not in myself. And I have discovered that all the promises of God are yes and amen in Christ Jesus. So I do understand when you tell me you have suffered greatly, but know in his kindness and in his gentleness and tenderness, this God has led you here today to hear this message in his sovereignty. That if you believe his son has atoned for your sin, then you can come to him today and know for sure that you have provision, protection, property waiting for you according to his promise. You have the glory that is to come according to his promise. And what have we learned about this God? He always keeps his word, right? He always keeps his promises. Why does he keep his word? Why does he keep it? It's based upon his word, right? 
because he said so. It's always going to happen. And what kind of God is he? God of great mercy and great grace. You can come to him today. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for these Old Testament historical figures, Lord, that are there for, as an example for us to teach us. We see very clearly that in Genesis chapter 26, you were proving yourself in Isaac's life just as you proved yourself in his father Abraham's life. That, Lord, through every turn, Isaac was learning that he could trust you, that you were going to get your way regardless. And sometimes, Lord, those ways when we're learning through that stubborn disobedience in our hearts can, can hurt, can make us struggle. But, Lord, you have a purpose in it all in that you are teaching us to rely upon you and not on ourselves. Lord, I pray that that's going to be the lesson for every person here this morning. That, Lord, when they know they have to stand before you and your throne in judgment, that they will not rely upon themselves, but they will rely upon what Jesus has done on their behalf. I pray, Lord, that throughout the week as we consider this wonderful word that you have given to us that we would remember you are a God who always keeps your promise. You do this based upon your word alone, not on our obedience, and that, Lord, you are always, always a great God of mercy and of grace. Lord, allow that grace to touch us today and change our lives forever. We pray this in the finished work of Christ alone. Amen. Let's all